Hey friends, welcome to It's All In My Head, where I talk to people about their experiences with mental health in a real, raw, and vulnerable way. I'm here to share stories that connect us to others in the way that mental health shows up for us, the challenges that we face, the stuff that gets us through, and perhaps most importantly, how we remain resilient. I'm your host, Joel Kaskinen. Welcome back, Sissy Squad, to another episode of It's All in My Head. This is your host, Joel Kaskinen. Obviously, you all know who I am. I am here with one of my former students and employees from Western Colorado University. I feel like we've actually kind of gotten closer since we've left because we've started like talking about real things that maybe we couldn't talk to in a job related sense, but I'm excited to have you on today. Um, you and I have really seemed to bonded, bond over mental health and other things. So I'm really, really thrilled to jump into our conversation. So without further ado, everyone, I have my friend Noah Helmond on the podcast today. So Noah, would you just go ahead and introduce yourself? Definitely, Joel. Thanks for letting me be on this podcast with you. Of course. Uh, I've been really thinking about how to introduce myself, listening to all your different podcasts and how everybody does it their own way. And so I've been thinking a lot about identity the last couple of years of, because everybody has their own things to identify. Usually it's tied to a job. For my entire time at Western, I was the firefighter. Everybody knew me. You talk about fire, you automatically think Noah. It's just how it was. And so after I've left fire behind, I had to think of who I am. And so I was a student. I practiced forestry. I practiced land management. Um, but those are not my entire identity. I'm so much more than that. And so I've been playing with the idea that I'm a storyteller. It's a good story, takes elements from the past. It considers the current present things, and then it influences the future. And so I think that's what encapsulates um, and covers exactly what I am, which is all my other elements. I'm a force. Uh, I used to fight forest fires. I love emergency management. I get along with those type of communities. I am proud of my neurodivergence of ADHD and possible somewhere on the spectrum is likely. Um, I am a pansexual. I am so many different elements and all those things contribute to who I am, but also I think influence my mental health um, where that the, I'm still learning those, how those things all fit together. I think perhaps that was my favorite answer <laughs> to uh, like an introduction, like not that I asked a question, but like my favorite intro from a guest so far. Um, I think truthfully, we're all storytellers in some capacity. Some of us are just better at it. Um, but I think all of us have experiences. And I love what you said about connecting the past to the present to the future, because it all encapsulates who we are as a being. Um, and I love that you are identifying as a storyteller these days, because I, I think that's the one thing that I remember from like one-on-one -on -one conversations with you and, you know, the, the perspectives that you were able to share with our staff and with other students was you always had a story to share because you had had a wealth of life experiences that so many other people 
in our community didn't. And I just always found that fascinating and powerful. So the fact that you're tapping into that is really, really cool. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. And thanks for sharing, you know, a little bit about your neurodivergence and your sexuality. I think those are really important pieces of our identities. Um, so yeah, we'll spend some time on um, all of that in our conversation today, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you for introducing yourself. Um, I'm going to just get a little bit deeper here. Uh, so yeah, listeners, Sisu Squad, Noah and I worked together, as I said, he was one of my student employees. So um, a direct report of mine while I was at Western. You worked for us for two years, correct? Uh, just the one year, I believe. Just one year. Okay. Why was I thinking it was two? Whatever. I have no concept of time. Anyway, whatever. You were a major part of our team that year, you know, and I just, like I said, your perspectives were always so fascinating and so powerful to me. So anyway, um, Noah and I bonded also because we have birthdays like a day or two apart, two days apart, I think. Maybe I'm 8th of April and you're- Yeah, and I'm the 6th. That's what I was thinking. So we're two but days apart. the same apart. year, that was the thing is we were both like the same age and all the other Aries were these yeah. babies. Exactly. Literally, we are two days apart, which I found so fun. Um, I love finding other, you know, fellow Aries and finding people who have the same birthdays and whatever. But so, yeah, I just remember having so much fun with you and um, I'm excited to dive deeper into your mental health journey and all of that jazz. So you're an avid listener. You know the first question that I always ask. So Noah, if you would just share with our listeners today, what is your relationship with mental health and where are you at in your journey today? That's a fun answer because, or a fun question because, uh, I think that's evolved even in the last year. I think I would have had a certain answer a year ago. And then today I realized maybe that answer has changed. And so I think I've had rough years. I've been had really, really low years um, that were really hard to get through. Um, I've had really good years somewhere. In theory, I, I don't really remember that much, but uh, there's good times, there's bad times. Um, I think I've gotten to a point of beginning to accept. And so I think one of the major things um, influencing my mental health has been stepping away from a Christian-based religion and starting to believe more heavily into Buddhism um, especially the concept of acceptance uh, and acknowledging what you can't change and what can be changed. Um, and so I think where I am today uh, with my mental health sort of takes on and builds, it's influenced by all the experiences I've had uh, working in emergency services, losing very close friends to suicides, um, all kinds of experiences have definitely challenged me. Um, but I'm starting to just barely see the, uh, the good that can come out of those really hard moments. For sure. For sure. Um, I like that, uh, you made the point about evolving because I don't think I'm unpacking this with my therapist currently. I don't think I even sometimes recognize the person that I was two years ago or a year ago, or, you know, whatever. Um, and so I like that you brought up the fact that you had a straight answer that you would have given a year ago, but now it's different. Um, 
Okay, so I want to get into a little bit of your like neurodivergent journey. You know, you've referenced um, that you are probably on the spectrum somewhere. Um, you've referenced some ADHD. Um, what does that process look like in your mental health journey and in your just daily life? Because obviously that probably impacts you pretty significantly. I think to be able to answer that question, I need to give folks a little bit of a background, which is I was raised in Christian science, a very, very strict religion where you're not allowed to go to doctors. You're not allowed to be diagnosed with anything. Um, no matter what happens, you never do anything, but you can have people pray for you and you can yeah. pray. And that's the only thing you can do. And so because of that, um, I was homeschooled all the way until like middle school. So I was never diagnosed with anything. And I was living with undiagnosed ADHD uh, my entire life. It wasn't until I was, I think, working as an RA. That was the year I was diagnosed formally with ADHD. Um, and so I think that sort of just was like a big aha, uh, big aha moment of, yeah, I, I understand it. I'm not stupid. I actually, I feel like I'm a good student. I'm good at my job. And that was the moment when I realized this explains why I couldn't do well in college the first time. Um, I went through three years of college was almost, you know, a year off graduation and I dropped out of school and had to reassess my life because it wasn't working. Um, and then now I'm discovering and navigating the challenge of trying to get the diagnosis or going through the process for diagnosis as on the autism spectrum disorder. Um, but as an adult, that's an extremely hard to, uh, process to go through trying yeah. to find someone to make that diagnosis. The costs, the insurance won't cover it. Um, it's pretty um, incredible how high that is. Um, I, additionally, across the neurodivergent community, um, trying to get those diagnoses and be recognized for those challenges that we have while being highly functioning, a great student, a great in their jobs mm -hmm. um, is really difficult because people don't want to acknowledge that um, ADHD or ASD is common in adults. When in reality, a lot of people have it and um, some people might be better at masking it than others, but I've generally not been great at masking it. Um, I can sort of present as a professional person when I need to, um, but that hasn't reflected very well in my ability to socialize, to build connections um, outside of the emergency services, outside of really intense situations. Hmm. I'm trying to reflect back onto my experience with you, like in the RA setting. And I think that you're like, I'm, I'm piecing some of this together because um, I knew that you had been diagnosed that year with ADHD, but like, I guess I, I don't think that I recognized in the moment, like of how like impactful that was to you and like how much you maybe were struggling with the social piece of the job and connecting with residents, connecting with students, connecting with staff members, um, you know, because I felt like we connected and I felt like you were doing, performing your, in your job well. Um, and so I, I guess I like, I look back and I'm like, hmm, I might've missed a few things, but like could have coached you and like, you know, supported you through that journey a little bit, but I'm glad that you're there now. And I, I simply can't even imagine like the process that your processes that you're going through right now to be diagnosed and to explore diagnoses as an adult, um, especially as a man in this society, because we are expected to function very highly and to be quote unquote, the 
breadwinner winners, the perfect people, the you know leaders of society and culture and what have you. So I, I can't imagine what you're going through. It's it's got to be difficult, but I commend you for doing the work and putting in the time and energy because. I mean, that on top of your work life has to be a lot. It is a lot, but I think compared to how intense the last couple of years at Western were, I think it's relatively easy. Um, I think I'll give you the credit and the benefit of the doubt of not noticing um, because it's probably masked by just pure exhaustion. Um, while, during that year as your RA, I was had a full co- uh, course load of undergrad mm-hmm. and a full course load of graduate stuff. I was working probably over the required number, uh, minimum number or maximum number of hours of multiple jobs, uh, well beyond it. Um, and so I think I was operating usually in like one to two hours of sleep a night. And so I think oh my God. I was just to the wall, uh, like three or four bit, like a rockstar energy drinks a day, like just barely holding it together. And so I think knowing that that's where I usually uh, perform really well. It's in really high stress, really high mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, intensity things where you just have to keep on going. You're pushing past exhaustion. So I think, I think that's a reflection of a type of neurodivergence. A lot of first responders have that with ADHD where that's where they can be there. That's like their happy place. And so I think that's an important element of who I am and uh, what has shaped me to pursue what I have. Definitely. Okay, so you've, you've referenced the working in first response for a little bit, you know, you've referenced that a couple of times. Um, what would you say, like, is your biggest reward about working in first response, being a first responder, your biggest challenge being a first responder, as, it, as those two things relate to your mental health? Like, talk me through that journey a little bit. I think the biggest benefit or the, the positive, I think in my mind, I need to split it off into a positive and a negative almost, even though nothing is that black and white um, with a human mind or in a human experience. Um, I think the really positive thing though was, is when I w- started doing Wildland Fire, I wasn't a great person. I had a terrible work ethic. I was lost in so many ways. And so it showed me discipline. It showed me it taught me the skill sets of always volunteering to help others. And it lo- allowed me to direct my caring into helping other people. And that developed into a ability to be able to do well in my mental health. I do well when I'm helping other people, when I'm serving other people, when I have some purpose um, beyond just everyday life. Um, so I think that was the really beneficial side of it. I think the negative side of that um, comes from being overworked for very little pay. Um, Wildland firefighters see the highest rate of suicide of almost any other job Mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's like four times higher than veterans, three times higher than structural firefighters, incredibly high numbers. And that's due to being paid minimum wage. We were getting paid in California less than the uh, workers at McDonald's per hour of our work. And we were working 18, 24 hour shifts, um, past exhaustion, seeing people die, seeing homes lost, I think it all adds up. And so I think you can look at it as a small snapshot and realized, oh, someone died, there's a fatality that impacts you. But then I think it all stacks up eventually when you, in a season like that, the first season, I think it was like our state uh, resources, we saw like 15 fatalities across the country. It's much higher number. Um, I think those all add up eventually. And you realize 
why am I doing this? Um, and what are the benefits to doing this anymore? So I think I learned how to lose people that we were working with, um, which wasn't all bad, I would say. I think it gave me a direction to understand grief in a new way. Uh, it was so much different than losing friends to suicide before that in high school, to overdoses, to all kinds of things like that. I think it helped to be able to differentiate um, my grief in some ways. That's fascinating. Again, I can't even like possibly imagine, but also like as someone who has been through similar experiences and with grief anyway, and who has lost people to suicide, like that piece of it, I can totally empathize with, but I totally believe without a doubt that being a first responder to like wild wildfires would absolutely train you to be better at processing grief than the average lay person who doesn't experience things like that. Just, I mean, it is very high intensity. It's very traumatic because of the amount of loss, you know, of life, of homes and structures and communities. And yeah, I mean, everything you just said makes total sense in my brain. Um, you also said something about the like high rate of suicide among wildland firefighters. Um, so you know that I work in suicide prevention now since leaving higher education. I'm curious about those statistics and if you have any like numbers or resources that you could point me in, I'd love to get my hands on some of that just for my own curiosity. Um, is there like, do you have any of that off the top of your head that you could rattle off to me or like resources that you could send me? Uh, the two sources um, I'd recommend going to the for the wildland specific community uh, called the Eric Marsh Foundation. Um, it's this incredible lady uh, who lost her husband and her husband's entire hotshot crew, like the elite firefighters, they all died on a fire in 2013. Mm -hmm. So she started this amazing foundation trying to help the families of fire, uh, the families that have lost a firefighter, um, but they also track a lot of different data and they usually share that type of information. Um, it's famously hard to get good numbers uh, they're discovering right. because 80, something like 80% of all wildland firefighters are seasonal, which means they work for six months and then they're fired and they have to reapply for jobs the next year, um, which means when they're off duty, they're not employees anymore, which means that they don't get tracked into a database if they commit suicide in the off season, which is when uh, most of them do. We call the suicide alley. It's usually like December to March, April in that area when they don't have work, they don't have the... Uh, mission readiness they're not getting to go and like fight fire with all their brothers that they trust with their lives and so i think um, that's generally one of the difficulties of tracking it um, the other huge organization that doesn't only do wildland but they do a lot with wildland is called next run rung next rung like the rung of a ladder mm, okay. um, and they are great because they're supporting firefighters from a peer-to-peer -peer perspective with mental health um, incredible work though that um, they have hotlines where firefighters can call at any time of day and get support when they need it that's amazing thank you so much i'm totally looking that up um yeah i'm working on a couple of um campaigns for work currently where uh we really want to focus on education and advocacy efforts for different communities and we want to focus on how we change people's perspective and change people's minds about 
talking about mental health through education and advocacy. So um, yeah, definitely want to get my hands on that stuff, but thank you. That's like super helpful. Um, I had another thought and I just totally lost it. Um, suicide, fire, I'm working my way back. Oh, so you said serving with your brothers that you like completely trust. You have referenced masculinity a couple of times. You've referenced, you know, like being, I think I brought up the point of like, it's hard to be a man that performs well while also being neurodivergent or having struggles because we can't present that. We can't express that. We can't show that. Um, I know that this is something that you're really passionate about and that we've talked about before. Can you share with us, you know, some of your perspectives on this, some of your experiences with this, like, what are your thoughts on just being a man as a first responder in the world of mental health, who is also willing to talk about this stuff? Yeah, I think it's uh, definitely a complex problem um, in so many ways, so many different dimensions that um, can't always be covered, but um, I think it's important to say I'm no longer a first responder. I'm out of that. Um, I've sort of walked away from that lifestyle for now, um, but I care deeply for them and the safety of all the people that are still out there engaged in these um, incidences all over the world. Um, I think a lot of it shapes down to that we're held to these high standards of this is how we do it, the job, whatever job that is. Um, and we're expected to be able to do it no matter what. Mission first is a common phrase thrown around between fire, between military, law enforcement, all across the board. Mission comes first. Um, you're sort of expected to push your personal stuff out of the way. Um, and I think that has a power to it. That there is some good to that type of logic where you, you get the mission done. I think the flip side of the, that, that they're not building up enough is giving people the tools to cope uh, giving people mm. healthy ways to heal, to grieve. Um, I think the number of people in fire who are serious alcoholics is reflective of a culture where instead of mourning, instead of taking the time to grieve, you drink it away, um, which is pretty heavily practiced within the fire community and within other communities too. And so I think it's uh, I think it's all building pretty heavily on those masculine values of uh, you can carry it all by yourself. Uh, you don't need anyone else. You can power through. Um, there's no need to show weakness because you got it. Um, which is interesting because I remember my mentors when I was first getting into fire said, everybody needs to have a chair. And what they, the chair meant to them was some reason that you want to come home at the end of the day. And so almost all, everybody else I was working with all had families. So at the end of shift, they could go home to their families and everything was fine. As one of the only people thousands of miles away from my family, I had no friends in that area coming home at the end of shift to nothing. Um, I think that was a challenge to try to figure out why I, I cared about coming home at all. Wow. I guess that makes total sense, but I don't think I ever would have thought about that. Yeah. What, what were some of your reasons for, you know, coming home and what were your ch chairs at the time? 
at that point in my life, I didn't have many things. Um, I just dropped out of college. I lost contact with almost everybody I knew prior to that in my life. I had, uh, was drinking very heavily at that point, uh, not very controlled at all. Um, at that point, I had almost nothing except for I loved fighting fire. Mm-hmm. I loved the feeling of stepping onto the line with four to 20 other people and just working for hours on end and sort of embracing the suck of it. Like the job absolutely stinks. Like it's miserable work, uh, but it has to be done. And so we take a lot of pride in sort of embracing that suck. Yeah. I love the embrace the suck mentality because I feel like that just serves you well. Um, you know, you went from being homeschooled, which has to suck. And like, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. You tell me I've never been homeschooled, but if my parents were my teachers, I would hate it. And then you went to college and you weren't doing well. And so you reevaluated life and you left, you know, so you embraced the suck there. And then you went into working in wildland firefighting, which is got to be miserable and yeah also so rewarding so embracing the suck and then he went back to college and embraced the suck of paying for school and working a job that paid nothing and you know like again just terrible situations at times and you know now you're working in forestry which probably is a little bit less sucky but like yeah I mean it just feels like embracing the suck suits you like you are just someone who you put your nose down you you know grind it out you deal with it you you know don't let it like ride you and bother you and then you release it you know you're but you're not one of those people that's going to hold on to the like suck of it all you're going to let it go I'm just too stubborn. That's what I've always joked is it's not strength. It's not courage. It's not resilience. It's just, I'm too stubborn to give up. So I think that's pretty accurate in the sense that uh, there's a lot that we can change. There's a lot of, I acknowledge all the mistakes I've made, um, all the people I've heard along the way, all these different elements, but um, I can't give up. That's that's all. That's the lowest I'm willing to get to is the point where I can't take any more steps back. And then I know I'll always try to keep on fighting forward. Um, it might not be graceful and not, might not be fun. It might not be at all happy, um, but I'll always try to take that step forward when I can. Love that. Well, to me, you're making great strides and I'm, I'm loving watching you grow. I'm loving, you know, chatting with you about all of this stuff. I'm loving the constant texts that we send back and forth about different podcasts and resources and things that we have been sharing. I think that that's just very, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but very like, it just, it just, it goes to show like who you are and where you're at today. And like, it just seems that you're doing really well. Um, at least as an outside perspective, I don't know, you tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm finally putting in the work for myself and prioritizing myself and being willing to walk away from jobs or experiences uh, that are not good for me. And so I think, uh, who knows if I'm in a better place now than I was in the past, uh, but I'm trying to make myself a priority again, um, which I think is the important step to be Uh, Mm -hmm. taking um, with everything else that's happening in the world right now. 
Yeah, and sometimes that's all we can do. Um, you just said something about leaving experiences that aren't good for us. And you've made that statement a couple of times. You've talked about religion and your conservative, what was it? Christian science background, right? Yep, that's okay. it, yep. Jump into that experience a little bit because I mean, my last episode, two episodes ago, last episode was we got into Christianity. We got into religious trauma um, quite a bit. So it's something that I'm definitely unpacking on my own. And it's something that I'm exploring, but I'm curious about your journey, especially with Christian science, because that is very strict. And so, yeah, I mean, to go from that to Buddhism and being someone that's defining yourself by your own norms and social structures, if you will, like that's got to be really freeing and liberating and also terrifying. So talk us through that. I think a lot of it speaks to why I dropped out of college um, the first time around. So I was going to a college for all Christian scientists at that point. I was drawn to it because it had a very strong rugby program, amazing coach, like one of my closest coaches I've ever been. He was like a father to me, like incredibly great human being. At that college, though, they were enforced it pretty strictly, no going to doctors, um, no taking medication, no drinking, even if you're 21, uh, no being in someone of the opposite gender's room after midnight. We had no locks on any of the doors um, in any of the dorms. And so you had no privacy, uh, sort of a challenging situation. Um, and then one step further from that was they don't really accept or acknowledge the presence of neurodivergence. And so I remember over and over again, I'd study harder than any of my peers and they would all get A's and I'd fail. I'd go to the professors like you would in college and say, hey, I'm struggling. Like, do you have any ideas? Like, how can I study better? You know, all the usual questions. And then most of the time, the answer I got was, you should pray about it. Remember that you have the mind of God and you know, all this stuff about you're perfect, how you are. You can't be anything but perfect. And that was really hard for me to acknowledge because I was like, I'm not doing well in school. I'm getting injuries and I'm not healing like everybody else. Um, this whole prayer thing is not working for me very well. And so I think I had to reckon with myself because I was raised in this religion. My parents are very mm -hmm. heavily involved in this religion. Um, everybody else in my family is still in it. Um, so I had to come to terms with who I am and what are my core beliefs that I believe about the world. And I think that was a, a tough decision I had to make. Um, I don't think if I hadn't dropped out of college and made a radical change from trying to become a teacher to working in land management, I don't think I would have ever gotten to much of a better place. Um, three years of that college almost broke me. I was incredibly depressed. I was struggling. I had very few resources to go to. Um, it definitely was not an easy place or uh, to exist just because you don't have any resources other than to go to the religious leaders. Um, and so, so much of what we're taught, I think throughout American culture is, I think we're directed toward a religion, toward believing in something better is watching out for us. And, I think through all my life experiences, I don't, I can't believe in that type of thing anymore, but I can believe in the good of people to care about each other and to look out for each other, um, which I'm blessed. One of my best friends of all time 
was at that college too. She's a therapist now. Uh, I think the reason I'm here today in so many ways is because of her. She helped me decide to leave it. Um, she's been incredible support for me. Um, and so I think the important step with people coming out of religion, especially people in the LGBTQ plus community um, is to find people that can honor who they are, uh, to value who they are, and not just acknowledge it, but listen to how they want to identify and share what makes them a person. So I think that was the biggest change that had to happen as I was leaving uh, a, a very strict religion. God, wow. That's like quite the situation. Um, uh, like I just simply can't imagine being in a place that doesn't even allow you to go to the doctors or allow you to have privacy of locks on your doors. Like that seems just beyond to me. Like that's wild, but I mean, that's some cultures and that's just the, yeah, it's just not a culture that I think would be healthy for me and obviously isn't a culture that's healthy for you. And so I think it's it's really cool that you're out of there, but I th- do think that it's also really valuable that it brought you someone that has saved your life in many ways and who has helped you get to where you are today. So, I mean, we can't really look back and say like, everything was bad when you have a friend like that. I always think it's sort of funny um, with the stance the school was taking that my rugby coach was actually the one of being like, hey, maybe you're somewhere on the spectrum Um, because he was a brilliant, he's a brilliant rugby coach, Uh, won nationals, like this tiny little college, beat the Coast Guard, beat all these schools, went to nationals five years in a row, the most of any college. (laughs) That was my alarm for getting ready for this podcast. Um, Oh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, my coach, he um, recognized that. And so I think he, what made him a brilliant coach was he acknowledged he ha- was on the spectrum too. And so he could see patterns and I love patterns. I can connect yeah. and see how things fit together really well. Um, and so that was, he started talking about people being different for the strengths, not just you can't do it, you can't socialize, you can't. I think so many of us are presented with those negatives of what do you need to be successful? And he instead took the stance of, you see things that other people don't see. So how can we make you a better person, a better rugby player, a better man was always his priority on the team. How do we make better men? We don't care if we win at rugby. We did win a lot, but his priority was always, how do we make better people? And then the rugby will come afterwards. So I think there's people willing to stand by their core beliefs Uh, no matter where you go, no matter what religion you're in, no matter what community you're in. um, But you have to find those people who are willing to stand by what they believe in. Absolutely. I guess the reason I'm bringing this up, Noah, is because I feel like I was faced with a very similar situation when leaving Western, you know, like it was not a healthy place for me by any stretch of the imagination. And while I too made really amazing friends at that place. And I do feel like I am partly the person that I am today because of Western and because of Gunnison. I felt like I couldn't be there any longer because 
my values weren't aligning with the institution's values and the institution's mission. And more importantly, the missions or the university's actions, you know, like the administration was acting in ways that were unethical and immoral and against my beliefs. And so to leave a place that you know you're making a difference, you know that you have these couple of strong mentors and friends, but it's not working for you, I think is really an impossible decision to make, but it's a decision that has to be made for you. You know, like I hate the cliche, you can't pour from an empty cup saying, but like literally when you are being taxed so hard that you can barely function and like barely live, you've got to make a change. Something's got to give. And I think both you and I have been through experiences like that. I think that just made me think of, um, so I think I might uh, share from the RA experience. Um, I think when you're taxed to the point where you don't think you can keep on existing how you're existing, um, I think that's the time when a lot of us take the step to risk uh, doing what we believe in, uh, less worried about the consequences. And so I think as an RA, I saw everybody being so worried about enforcing the rules. These people broke the rule of punish them, punish them, punishment from all levels of the university across all the departments. I won't name the different uh, entities. Um, and so I think as an RA, I made the decision, yes, rules need to be followed. These things need to be safe. Um, but yeah. every single person on my hall knew their safety came first. Um, if yeah. they're in trouble, they could call me. And who cares about the rules? I want to make sure every single person lives through the end of the semester. And so I had incredible relationships with a lot of the people in my hall where they were willing to call me and they did call me. Um, and I think because they had that relationship, they knew that they were safe, they were valued as a person. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I think that's all any of us should be doing is how do we care about the people that are under us in our responsibility? Um, and that was a lesson that I carried through my time in the Forest Service. Um, my crews knew mission came first, but I don't care if we get the job done, if anyone is injured. Like at the end of the day, every single person is more important than anything else in the world. Everybody's safety, uh, feeling loved, feeling safe, feeling valued. Um, those are the, the cultures that we need to be promoting in whatever job we work in. Yeah. Um, because we need to have communities again. Otherwise, we're going to see so many other problems that come from people lacking that feeling of security as well as connection. I mean, absolutely. Security and connection. You just named the two like biggest needs to keep from suicide, you know, like when people don't have connection and people don't have security, those that's they're at risk of suicide. You know, we see that every day. You see that every day. So you just totally hit the nail on the head. Like if we don't provide communities that provide and foster and facilitate belonging and security, like we're all just dead. We're all dying. <laughs> you nailed it, Noah. You nailed it. Um, okay, so for sake of time here, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't touched on? Uh, let's see here. Yeah, I think um, I think it's important to address um, the lack of support for neurodivergence who don't 
show and represent and uh, aren't as obviously seen um, by people because yeah, yeah. I've noticed, especially at Western, but all major universities and colleges where students who have a harder time, they get plenty of services, they get all that stuff, but the people that don't um, show their struggling quite as easily i think they get passed over um, both mm -hmm. by their peers and by classic support structures um, so i think it's really important to be intentional of how we treat every single person because a lot of people have things going on that nobody is going to pick up on um, what comes to mind is i had an experience when i was at western where uh, we were doing some stupid like teamwork drill i was 18 plus semester credit hours i was super busy i had no sleep um, and I flipped out because we're doing like this stupid thing that was a waste of time. So I said, this is a waste of my fucking time in front of a guest lecture, which probably wasn't the best idea, but they wanted to kick me out of the, the class for that. And I was like, hey, I've worked in environmental education. I know when you do these things, challenge by choice is a thing where you can't force oh, yeah, people to totally. be proximity to each other, like literally standing on those little like circles, like with 10 people. I'm like, I don't want to be next to these strangers. Um, and so I think... I, when I brought that to them and I argued, I was like, you can't kick me out of the class. Like, I know my rights. I know my values. I know I'm a great student. And I don't think that I felt, I, I made sure that the department knew that I didn't feel valued as a human being if you're not accepting that I carry things, I carry grief, I carry things um, based on my neurodivergence. And so I think I was able to help my department see that we all carry our own weights. We all carry our own things. Um, you can't expect everybody to be smiling or uh, everybody to be able to respond uh, verbally. That was another thing I got called out on is some days I, I just couldn't say hello to people as I walked by them. I was just so drained. Um, so I think more than anything else, there is a huge value in seeing every single person, no matter what their uh, orientation, no matter what their neurodivergences, no matter how their mind works or what they believe in, just seeing them, listening to them, um, and being able to interact with them, even if you your core values dis, uh, are against what they believe in. I feel like we have to end there. That was so perfectly said. <laughs> so I have just a few final questions for you. The first being, this is something I'm trying to incorporate into my conversations with people. Um, are you reading anything or listening to anything right now that speaks to some of the things that we've talked about in our conversation today? Anything that you want to recommend to other listeners? Definitely. Um, three podcasts I always recommend to every single person that will listen to me. Um, the first one's On Being, uh, which is an incredible podcast. She interviews like all walks of life, ministers, world leaders, like everybody. And she's the best at interviewing people. Um, just a great one to be inspired by the work that's being done in the world. Um, and then another one that's like that, except for, for the LGBTQ plus community, Queerology uh, with Matthias Roberts. Phenomenal. Oh He's a therapist in like Seattle area. Um, they talk a lot about the impacts of mental health to those communities, as well mm -hmm. as how to get past religious shame. Uh, sexual shame, all these other things. Uh, he's a phenomenal uh, mind and he incredible interviews. I highly recommend the read one Hodrick Otumo too. Very good. Oh, that is a good one. Have you read his book? 
I have not yet, but it's on my like wish list of books to buy. Okay, I have it. I'm gonna send it to you. So give me your address um, after we're done recording because I'm gonna send it to you. He is incredible. You actually were the person to recommend that podcast to me and I love it. So anyway, I now listen to On Being and Queerology because of you, but Matthias Roberts, I feel like is me. <laughs> and I just literally resonate so like deeply with him, but his book is incredible and I'm totally sending it to you. Okay, Sorry. I interrupted Third the one. last thing. <laughs> Uh, third one, which is actually really important because this person would be great to have on your podcast. Um, it's called the Unity uh, the Unity Project podcast. Um, and oh, I'm blanking on her name, Jackie, something I believe. I might be wrong in the name there. Um, she does stuff about the relationship with people and their bodies, which I think is a oh, huge wow. connection to mental health. Um, she actually like Instagram messaged me because I think she saw that I followed like Matthias Roberts and uh, Patrick Otuma and all these people and so she just messaged me being like hey check out my new podcast and then she communicates with her listeners like really really good I'm stuff so following um, she'd be phenomenal on your podcast um, because mental health is a huge uh, tie to our bodies they're both tied to each other so much um, and so I highly recommend that one just great voices great perspectives um, she's really really good at, um, with her podcast too amazing uh, well, thank you for sharing those recommendations. Um, the kind of closing out question that I have for you, you know the drill. If you are a first time listener to the podcast today, I ask all of my guests as we wrap out, wrap up, not out the episode, what does SISU mean to you as it relates to your mental health journey? So for those of you that don't know what SISU is, or if you're just tuning in for the first time, SISU is a Finnish word that translates to English as guts and determination and resilience and strength and so many other things. It's more of a concept. It's more of a lifestyle, if you will. But I am Finnish. I'm 25% Finnish. My grandfather's a first-generation American. So that lifestyle, that concept is very important to me. And I believe that it's a big part of my own mental health journey. So I like to ask all of my guests how it impacts their journey. So Noah, what does Sisu mean to you at this moment as we're talking right now? It's funny, as we were talking a lot about evolution, um, this is an answer that's definitely changed. Um, I think originally it would have been that answer that uh, links to the history of that word of it was developed if my understanding is correct in Finland when they fought off a massive Russian invasion they were undermined uh, undermanned like, and somehow they like pushed away the Russians um, I just heard a podcast about that that's how I know the history of the word um, I need so to I listen think, to that episode <laughs> good one. Um, I think that type of strength is what I initially thought of it as as fighting back and doing whatever it takes to survive um, now though, I've started really enjoying, and, uh, I think it, it, I hold a similar meaning to the phrase, it is what it is, which a lot of people look down on, but I think there's a power to that phrase, which is, mm. it is what it is. There's bad things happening in the world. Bad things will happen to us in our lives. We'll suffer loss. Um, but we all live, we all die. And so I think there's a piece to that of knowing, 
we can watch the world move in front of us. We can watch things happen to us. Um, but I think true resilience is being able to just focus on yourself, focus on your breathing, focus on the nature around you, understand how we all fit together. We're a web of life. Um, and just having that patience to find silence, find peace um, in whatever ways that looks like for each of us. That was an incredible answer. I'm obsessed. Also, send me that podcast episode um, about the history of Sisu because I need to listen to it. I'll send it to you again. <laughs> Don't worry. I know I've listened to like I like have it bookmarked somewhere, but I know that I haven't listened to it yet. So I need it again. <laughs> um, okay, so that kind of wraps things up. Unless you have any final thoughts. I don't think so. Um, okay. Well, where then can our listeners find you? Because this podcast is all about building community of resilience, community of strength, community of connection. So where can people find you if you if they want to connect? Um, I think Instagram is a good way. Um, I just have a new page or whatever it's called on Instagram called community underscore mycelium, like the mushroom fungus thing. Oh. So community underscore mycelium. I'm trying to start this new project and maybe there'll be a podcast in the future. Where we're playing with that idea of what are the intersections between the natural environment and humans' lives? And so how can we improve the safety and the security of our environments while also taking care of the needs of human communities? And so I hope that will be a place where I can share about nature, about protecting people's lives, as well as how can we be better storytellers? How can we tell a story that cares about the whole story, not just the data, not just the numbers, not just the money. How can we share these stories for each other um, in an equitable way? I love that. I'm immediately following. I did not know that you were doing this. Incredible, incredible. All right, well, Noah, I think that's it. So uh, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. Thank you for letting me share my somewhat weird perspectives, but I'm always <laughs> glad to talk with someone who values um, human lives and human resilience so much. Thank you, Joel. Absolutely, thank you. Uh, I adore you. You are just doing the damn thing and I so appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at itsallinmyhead.show at gmail.com, add me on Instagram at itsallinmyhead.show, or connect with me on Twitter at allinmyheadshow.